0: Welcome to FRT, the IIF's podcast at the intersection of finance, regulation, and technology. I'm Jessica Renier, Managing Director of the Digital Finance Team here at the IIF. I'm here with Russell Wald today. Russell is Deputy Director at the Stanford Institute for Human-Centered Artificial Intelligence, and together with the Institute's co-directors and faculty leaders, he helps shape the strategic vision and human-centered mission of HAI. We have certainly heard a lot over the past six to 12 months on AI and how the Institute has played a central advisory role to aspects of the activities in the United States, the United Nations Advisory Boards, and a number of other places that I'm sure Russell will tell us about today. Um, Welcome and great to have you with us, Russell.
1: Thanks for having me, Jess.
0: Let's just start off with about the Institute itself what the you know, institute's objectives are, our main focus, and just a bit of uh, history to help people be familiar with it?
1: So we're one of Stanford's newer institutes, but ironically, we're celebrating our five-year anniversary this year. And the reality is building an academic institute like this takes multiple years before it actually comes to fruition. So the concepts and ideas have been batted around since probably about 2017, 2018. What HAI essentially is, is it's Stanford's attempt to really understand artificial intelligence, but not just from a technology perspective, but a much more holistic viewpoint. And so for that, what we do as an institute is it's a highly interdisciplinary institute. We work across Stanford seven schools. So it's the School of Medicine, School of Engineering, School of Law, Graduate School of Business, all of these partnerships and engagements across the university in order to understand the technology from this interdisciplinary perspective. So often I'm telling people, I don't feel like there's even an AI expert anymore because I sit in a room with a bunch of different people who have differing views on the technology and come at it from different perspectives. And what we're ultimately talking about here is a general purpose technology. So law is very much going to affect and inform this just as much as humanities and art will the computer science and advancements within computer science itself will will be an impact here. And that's one important part about this institute is this broad breadth of areas that we look at. And we do it from a research perspective, an education mission that we still continue to hold, as well as two other important missions. And one is that of policy and engaging with policymakers. So the co-directors, when they initially came up with this concept, one part of it was they knew this was going to affect governments and governance. And so that's why they added in an entire policy arm to understand that a little bit more. And then another important part was, is they knew that industry was going to adopt this technology one way or another. And what's the most effective way that they can adopt it, but still do it in a responsible manner and where they're fully informed of the implications. So we have an entire industry program that we've developed as well. And that's a big part of the organization as a whole, with just these incredibly brilliant faculty I have the privilege of working with all the time to learn more about this subject as we're at the frontier of this.
0: So we hear a lot of people using the words human-centered these days, which of course are in the very title of the Institute. What is human-centered artificial intelligence exactly?
1: Well, as I just noted earlier, we can go back as far as 2017 when they're really thinking about this and what human-centered is. And if you're thinking about it in 2017, the ideas are actually quite novel at the time, but now seem to be a little bit more universally adopted. So one of the first key points that we see with human-centered AI that we think uh, needs to be prioritized is that it needs to be developed towards the benefit of human beings. And that's one critical important part. The second part of this, and it's actually getting a lot of attention lately, is that it's intended to augment human capability, not replace humans. And I have a colleague who's in the med school who is a senior fellow at HAI, and he's a radiologist. And he says, the question is not whether AI will replace the radiologist. The answer is the radiologist that uses AI will replace the radiologist that doesn't. And so that's the augmentation side. And then finally, you have the intelligence side. For us, what that means is we're looking at uh, the human brain and using that as a bit of inspiration to, to be able to understand intelligence more broadly and what that means. And we have these things of where we're hearing about sentience and AGI and all this other kind of stuff. How would we validate and understand that in the first place? And so it requires a unique understanding of intelligence. And so that's our general concept of human-centered AI. If I could just add this one other layer. My colleague James Landay, one of the co-directors of the institute has this human interaction and design work that he's done. And he's more or less said, we've historically built technology under the auspices of just thinking of the user. When we actually need to think about the community and its impacts as well as the social implications of it overall. And that when you think about that at the point of inception, the design point, you start to actually understand the technology in a much more effective way and what its dual use capabilities will be or could be.
0: So HAI has created an artificial intelligence index and a fairly robust report that has come out, I believe, a number of years now. Can you talk a bit about what that index is, what it measures, kind of what resources people can access through the reports?
1: Sure. So I'd love to say that we created it, but we are the host of it, which is a very uh, generous and honorable opportunity for us to be the host of it. We are actively involved in its annual creation now. And what the AI index essentially is, is it is a measurement tool of the progress of AI and what's happening. But there's lots of different ways of measuring progress on this. What we see here, for example, from the report is there's a technical performance chapter where you're able to look and see what's happening on the technical level and the performance levels of these models and their outputs and what that means. There's an environmental chapter that looks at the, you know, environmental outputs of this. There is a chapter on policy that looks at the amount of bills passed. And you can see how there isn't really many in 2016, 2017, and there's a whole lot coming out this year. So you just kind of, in general, you see a trend going upward. One important trend that I have found to be really fascinating and why we have such an important call at HAI for public sector AI and investment in public sector AI. AI has historically been an academic field, but in 2014, you see this divergence. And this divergence happens of where industry starts to get involved and academia starts to lose its role here. And a big part of that is because the amount of compute that's required to deliver what you need for some of these frontier models right now. And industry has seen that and just run away with it. What you finally get is in from our index, we know in 2022, there were 32 significant AI breakthroughs from industry. There were three from academia and there was nothing from government. And so it really helps us illustrate and understand what is the role of government and civil society and academia in that, in this tripartite kind of aspect of technology that's historically been part of how the U.S. has managed this. And that is where the government, the industry, and academia slash civil society have all had active roles here in this. And it's starting to be kind of an imbalanced ecosystem at the moment.
0: So thinking about some of the takeaways from that report and, and looking into 2024, with a bit of background around Davos. So of course, Davos took place just a bit over a month ago or so. Um, A lot of discussion about AI on the mountain and certainly in the Congress and on the promenade, pretty much everywhere I turned, there was something that said AI or come into this house and talk about AI. There was a lot of focus, certainly on national security and consumer protection kinds of issues. I felt like a lot of the, the headlines that kind of came out of that week were more around that, as well as development questions around how the global south may additionally help shape what goes on and how AI develops in the future. But of course, with the risks and with some of the downsides that were highlighted, if you walked down the promenade and kind of walked into some of these other fantastic roundtable conversations, there were more folks who are also focused on opportunities and exciting applications of AI across all kinds of industries rather than the risks so much. So given the many different messages going on, kind of the media often highlighting a lot of the risks, but a lot of the subject matter experts also diving much more into the opportunities and we see investment by industry there. And then some of the dynamics around international development and you said public sector, right? Where do you see kind of all of those headlines going? What main kind of pictures do you get a sense of the public sector moving forward on?
1: Yeah. So I think, you know, you're speaking about this and it's funny because I look at this and I see that what you're ultimately highlighting for me is a general purpose technology walks into the bar. Right. Like and everybody from their own perspective is going to have a view towards this and how things should be done and what you can get from it. You know, here's the one challenge I see most of all from this. And I think you slightly alluded to this in the question. What we have right now is a lot of media hype in this place. And you're hearing one of two things. It's going to fix everything or it's going to kill us all. And there's somewhere in the middle where it truly lies with a lot more nuance. There is a lot of positive things that this technology will be able to help do, whether that means changing the hospital space. My colleague, Fei-Fei Lee, is working on ambient technology you know, 30% of ICU deaths actually come from hospital-acquired infection or harms within the hospital. Meaning, just by virtue of you being in the ICU, and if you died, it was 30% most likely that you died, not because of what brought you in there, but by being in there. That's a pretty scary number. And so if you think about that, you know, some of the technology that, you know, people like her are working on, protein folding, for example, as well, what that will mean for targeted drug discovery for people with rare diseases. There are so many of these exciting possibilities that are going to transform a whole lot. And there's also a lot of snake oil out there, a lot of things that are being said to claim to do things that they cannot do. And there are very much limits to the technology and what it can do. Then to the other side of that polarization is the risk factor. And on the risk factor, to me, I look at the risk factor and I say, well, there seems to be a lot of risk, but there is some risk that are a little bit overly hyped that aren't based in any empirics that we actually spend a lot of time in rigor reviewing and trying to understand this. And we just don't see it yet at this point, and we don't see any indication of it yet. So on some of these existential parts of this, well, the truth of the matter is, is a meteor could come and kill all humans on Earth and that could happen at any point. I don't sit around worried about that at the moment, even though it is an actual risk. I am concerned about immediate risk, risk to privacy, risk to credit decisions and being denied credit decisions based on bias, risk about hiring issues related to bias, risk about misidentification of people where that has already been documented from facial recognition technology. So, there's a lot more of this immediate risk that we're going to be faced with. And if we're broadly deploying the technology in society without understanding the risk and how we're going to mitigate those, then we're going to prepare for the technology to fail us. So, I think we need to be a little bit more thoughtful and think about this in a way that is going to get rid of the hype on both sides and help us with those opportunities at the same time, have measured approaches towards risk that seem very likely in the immediacy.
0: So there are numerous efforts by multilateral bodies and global standard setters to create shared frameworks for the use of AI and and its development. These are high level, mostly, of course, not limited to one industry specifically, as you know, they're coming from more of a a principles or overall uh, position. For instance, efforts by the UN, the G7, and and the G20, just to to name a few, but all have initiatives at a global level and kind of an array of other multilateral or regional bodies that are attempting to kind of pull together and, and set frameworks. So if you're looking across the world at these efforts, are there any particular efforts that you're more focused on? and think are are moving along. I know a couple of years ago, I believe you looked into potential multilateral AI research institute. I think in 2022, a, you perhaps put out some research. Was it a report on enhancing international cooperation in AI research along those lines?
1: So I'll come back to that. Let me just say, I think on your larger part of your question here, I think what we're in the midst of is an international dialogue about what we want this technology to look like And what people's concerns are and what's happening in the space. That is a very important part of this. And we need to continue that. However, there's a part of me that's not overly sanguine about it. And what I mean by that is the concerns that I have of we're we're not really good at, you know, coming together and making the best decisions. Because if we were, we'd have better decisions here on climate change. So I think we need to continue working towards this. It's not saying it's futile, but I do think that the question is is where these standard settings start to get set and what will ultimately happen from this. I don't know. It's a tough one. There's not an easy answer here for you. That said, you did point out something that I think is really important that we have championed and care about. And so in the National Security Commission on Artificial Intelligence, there was a proposal for a multilateral AI research institute. There wasn't much meat on the bone at that point, but it was an interesting proposal. So it was about a page and a half in the final 750-page report. So we actually decided to take a deep dive and say, what is this and what would we do here? One of the most powerful approaches, I think, to this is a science-to-science exchange. So what we kind of essentially looked into was this whole institute, if you were like a CERN-style institute or some kind of global institute, at that time, we suggested housed in the US, and what it would allow for is scientists who maybe might even be compute-starved or data-starved in other countries to come and participate in the Multilateral AI Research Institute, which we call Mary for short uh, is the acronym and they could could work and be housed at Mary for a year or two. And in that, there's that science to science exchange and the development of norms can be put into that. And through the development of norms, you're going to be able to more effectively have that translate throughout the world. Let me give you a great norm that we have set here at Stanford HAI. So we're a grant making organization internally for faculty on Stanford's campus. And so anyone on campus can apply for our grants and many do. But before they can receive a grant, they have to do what's called an ethics and society review. And it's a requirement of where they're essentially saying their proposal will go before a board. And that board's going to review it. And they're going to sit there and say, wait a minute. Did you think about X, Y, and Z? Did you think about the dual use capabilities of this? Did you, you know, you might have been well-intentioned and this is what you're looking at, what your research proposal is. But did you know that it, what we see here is, is it could be used for this if you did it in this manner? And that makes people stop and think about how they do the design process from the very beginning of this and how the research and design is going to happen here. And I've been on the receiving end of this. It's not a little checkbox. It's actually a rigorous review and it makes the research better. It makes it more thoughtful and it makes us think about what the end goal and what the larger implications of the technology are. Imagine if you were able to have that within a Mary, a Multilateral AI Research Institute, of a similar method and approach of doing that. You would be able to create and set norms, not just from the top, but almost a desired part at the very beginning and basic inception of research. And that is a much better approach, we feel, if you were to look at it from that perspective.
0: So let's turn to geopolitics then, since we're, we're going from kind of multilateral level, global level and in, in what's going on in the world. So from a geopolitical standpoint, one of the things that I keep saying is I feel like there's a bit of a three legged stool, if you will, of prioritization by various jurisdictions and how they are approaching the development of AI. And the three pieces that I would say are either prioritizing, approaching it from a regulatory standpoint, first, kind of writing rules, right? Second, it could be approaching it from a technical standards setting standpoint. So something more along the lines of what NIST does fairly frequently. And then third, more from an investment or development standpoint. So how do we take the capability that that we have and build on it? And, and if we take those three things, regulation, technical standards, and investment or development, I see different countries in different regions of the world ranking those three things in a different order. For instance, Europe certainly coming out of the gate with writing rules, coming up with the AI Act quickly. The U.S. taking more time, I think, on some of the technical standards and certainly the development, the investment in the capacity building there, as opposed to rushing to the rules writing stage. And then, of course, other areas. I know China has moved multiple of those priorities along over a number of years. But I think some of the differences between how we see different jurisdictions coming about certainly are driven by even their own regional or domestic geopolitics, for instance, where Europe has a need to kind of manage its own union, all of the different uh, member states that could otherwise develop uh, a fragmented approach to regulation. And, And we see Europe kind of move ahead on lots of regulations, not just with respect to AI, for exactly that reason. But just Thinking about all those geopolitics and kind of how they play into which of those three priorities is getting pushed forward more quickly in a particular area, how do you see some of the geopolitics playing into it from your view at HAI? It's
1: an interesting question. I agree with your assessment here first. The prioritizing of regulations sounds very EU. Technical standards seems fairly US. Investment. I think you noted the investment. I want to just pull on that thread for a quick second. And say, the question is, is what type of investment? So to me, I think that I look at investment when you were saying that to me, I'm thinking about, oh, well, it's a little bit more of not having as much of a regulatory body and trying to allow for innovation to flourish. But there is the aspect of public sector investment. And in public sector investment, I find that the U.S. is woefully behind, woefully behind. I think that we need, at a time when lawmakers don't want to spend money, and for good reason, and I get that and I understand that, we're also at a time of where an inflection point with this technology. And what we have is a lot of powerful companies that are seem to be leading the way versus having that broader ecosystem that's really needed in that space. And so this is why my colleagues, Faith Ailey and John Edmendi have had this powerful call for public sector investment in AI. And I think that's a really important part. On the geopolitic front, look, I think it's ultimately gonna just come down to see which model works. You know, let's see how it all plays out. If Europe becomes this kind of conscience of the world and puts on these important regulations, right, but then they're not able to innovate, how long are they gonna stick, you know, or find different ways to innovate or adopt changes to their regulatory standards? you know if the us is just going to rely on technical standards without any true uh, enforcement means here how satisfactory is that going to be to the public before there's actual some serious harms or dangers that could come from this so i think we're in just this uncharted area and if we love to say you know that the Experiment of democracy is one part of that in the US, is all the 50 states having different kinds of incubators of ideas. Well, the world and countries themselves are incubators of these ideas, and we'll see what the best pathway forward is. One important thing that I think we need to consider here, though, when we're thinking about this technology is a risk assessment. What is risk? Is there a net risk or is there zero risk, right? A, we just got done with this really important study on. Medical liability and what could happen to providers who are using AI systems, and if it goes wrong. And so, a big part of the motivation for that study was because of the fact that I, we were talking to people in the med school, and they would say, give us this example of something like, let's say, 100 people die of X rare disease, and there's an AI application that can save 70 of them, but of the 30 that die, five die as a direct harm from the AI system. Well they're not going to do anything at all. They're not going to even bother to try to save the 70 because they don't know where the liability line falls on them for that within the U.S. Okay, well, the question now here is understanding the risk and net risk assessment. Humans will always make mistakes humans will always have an error rate and we somehow feel more comfort from the human error rate which is higher than the machine error rate in some of these cases because it came from a human i think we really need to think about that as we're going forward and saying at the end of the day are we making things better is it on a net positive positive? and oftentimes it could be a substantial net positive One area we have to be careful about is bias. You know, if there's a efficacy rate of humans and it's 80%, and then you bring in a machine and it has a 90% efficacy rate, well, of course you'd want the 97% efficacy rate. But if the 3% targets a particular class of people, one gender, one race, something along those lines, then you have a disproportionate problem, and that is, is something that we cannot accept. But we should be thinking about all of these models whether it's from a geopolitical perspective or not, of where their application is applied to a more of a robust risk assessment and what will come from that.
0: So you actually dive into some some good points about um, sort of what the role of legislative frameworks actually is in in the beginning in, in that context. Fairly recently, SEC Chairman um, Gary Gensler made the point that consumer protection, in his mind, should should actually be the top priority of government bodies. And with this technology that's evolving so quickly that supervising applications and, and monitoring outcomes under existing regulations within each agency's relevant sector is the appropriate stance for the time being right now, and that more time would be better spent focusing on those consumer protection and data protection legislation to help move things forward. So how I kind of hear that is understanding that the standalone AI regulation as of yet may not be the the most appropriate kind of first step as opposed to leaning on the various agencies to enforce and exercise supervision within their authorities. Within the executive order, I I see all of those mandates and actions to the various agencies. Can you give us just any background on kind of how that whole process came to be, whether my interpretation of of kind of those ties is at all accurate in your mind or, or what you think of that?
1: First, I really love the EO. I thought this EO was really thoughtful. It's one of the longest EOs, but it was a very whole-of-government approach. For the most part, there's some really great things in the EO that are really exceptional. In regards to, I think, one point, though, on the regulations, and I think one area that you're talking about here is twofold. One is the... Areas of where existing regulations could apply. I think there's a lot of regulations already that are on the books that apply to artificial intelligence. And we simply say, well, it's AI, we should do something different. Well, no, it's still just as much the same thing as it was if you did something bad or good with Google as a search, right? So there's a lot of regulatory aspects that are in place right now that we don't have to rewrite too many things. I do hope to come back to that, though. There is one important part I would like to make about that. But there are a couple of things, and I think on the consumer protection side that you say that I think is really important. One is the idea of incident reporting. So, my colleague Dan Hove in the law school has really looked at this, and I've thought about this for some time as well. One reason aviation is so safe in the world, primarily, but you know, is the FAA, but also the National Transportation Safety Board. So, the NTSB, any incident that happens, whether it is a plane crashing to a door popping off a plane midair to a little screw and we never heard about it and the news came off, all get reported to the NTSB. And NTSB has the power then from there to go and investigate and look further. And when you start to see lots of incidents coming from something, you can address and refine and make it better. So, if we keep seeing, for example, reportings of incidents, for one particular model, towards one particular model provider, that's where government really can come through and say, okay, we need to audit this system because we keep saying, seeing it over and over and over, and now this is going to affect people's lives. That's a very much more powerful tool in the toolbox that I think can be applied. Another important part I see is acquisition and procurement, and the EO really does look at this. So, Instead of just having a regulatory body, there's also some backdoor regulations here, and that's in a way of incentivizing through purchasing power of the United States and the ability to say the U.S. federal government, which has a lot of money, will purchase this product from you if it falls under these frameworks and this is how it's done. That is going to be a very powerful way to be able to help set standards in the market. We've seen this in the past with Medicare and Medicaid and how that can shape an entire health industry by their purchasing power alone. So you could see things like that as well. Do want to come to this one point about whether we are from a policy perspective and as a government set up for an age of AI. And so my colleagues Dan Ho and Jen King looked into this and. One interesting part is, is this privacy paradox. So the 1974 Privacy Act, a very important federal statute that has helped guide us for years. One important part of that was, is because people were being denied and discriminated loans. And what we were able to do is put up this privacy statute into law. And you ultimately have here years of where banks cannot collect a certain amount of racial data. However, what we know is, is banks are underwriting credit uh, using these algorithms. We know that these algorithms do have bias in them, but unfortunately, the banks cannot properly audit them the way that they should be auditing them because they legally cannot collect the information because of what was a benevolent law in the nineteen seventies, is now making it impossible for them to do the appropriate audit they need to do at the end. We are going to have to kind of fundamentally rethink our laws a little bit to match that moment within AI to see how that applies and see that there's not perverse incentives or things that actually don't happen in the way we actually intend for them to do. And so we're going to have to restructure that. Again, back to that regulatory point, though, there are some great regulations on the books now that would apply to AI. But for these other laws that it's questionable whether it would fit, policymakers need to really think about this policy researchers how is it that we are structured appropriately for an age of ai
0: yeah you do bring up a you know a, a good point i'd say you know the financial industry has certainly been i would say a, a leader in terms of the development and deployment of ai over time and appropriate you know governance around it so there's a lot of kind of model risk management that the financial industry already you know does and it's not new especially if we think about like algorithmic trading and other activities that have been, you know, going on for quite some time. So there's a lot to be learned there. And of course, it's a product of the data environment, you know, that we are in and operate in and back to kind of rules around data privacy, data regulation, data localization, what we have access to and what we can actually do with that data to, you know, to ensure that we are deploying it in, in the way that we would we would wish. I wanted to touch quickly on just a couple of other items coming from the EO and around there. I know, of course, the recent launch of the US AI Safety Institute Consortium, which HAI is a, a member of, as are we. And then also the announcement of the National Science Foundation doing a pilot of a national AI research resource which I know is something that you had been very excited about. Could you tell us about that particular effort?
1: Sure. So I'll start with the Safety Institute. So this is just, again, us being engaged at a policy front with governments on this. And the U.S. stood up this Safety Institute. I think gonna be a really important thing. We're hoping to bring our research and scholarship to the table and ensure uh, safe and robust AI systems. So that's essentially one part of that. It's pretty uh, new and it's still being formulated at this at this point. The other part of this is indeed it's the Nair. And no, that's not the hair remover. It is the National AI Research Resource. And it is an important thing that in 2019, my colleagues, Fei-Fei Li and John Mendy, proposed this idea and saw essentially, I think I said at the beginning of this conversation, what we saw from... Our AI index is 32 industry breakthroughs in AI and three from academia and none from government. And that gets into that larger part of the ecosystem overall here. My colleague says, you know, not one university in the world could replicate a chat GPT model at this point. And she goes so far as to even consider the possibility that no universities in the U.S. combined could actually develop a ChatGPT model. Why is that? A large part of that is access to computational resources and data resources. Some of these frontier models require a lot of heavy computational resources, but it's not even just that. There's a dearth of compute available in general. And so it doesn't even require to do these large models. You could be doing smaller models, but still be a bit compute and data starved. So the answer to that was pulling together a consortium of universities and, you know, industry stakeholders, a whole variety of people in a coalition, and pressing Congress to consider this question. And Congress in 2020 passed the National AI Research Resource Task Force Act, and that allowed for this task force to study the concept of the government providing computational resources and setting up a data commons off of government data for nonprofit academic use. The Biden administration recognized the importance of this and they put it in their budget last year. And just this year, the National Science Foundation stood up a pilot and we are thrilled that that moment has finally come. However, that's only half the equation. It doesn't fully codify this. It doesn't, in law, it doesn't provide a continuous funding stream that is needed. So what sits in Congress right now is a bipartisan, bicameral bill, which is the Create AI Act. And the Create AI Act will uh, essentially codify the nair. And, you know, it sounds like a lot of money, but for as low as 400 to 500 million annually, U.S. can supercharge its AI development and not have it exclusively focused on product AI, but these other important parts of artificial intelligence, whether that is you know helping put out wildfires, whether that is some of these medical discoveries that uh, might not have a necessarily an immediate profit to make it worth it for private industry to invest in. But certainly it's worthy of academia to study and try to find these types of breakthroughs that could actually happen. So ultimately, what this really is, is providing a resource, and infrastructure-based public sector AI for study so that it's not just sequestered only to these industry areas and that this is that very focused industry part of AI.
0: So getting back to Europe, just for a brief minute, the European Parliament's committees on internal market and consumer protection and on civil liberties, justice and home affairs recently endorsed the AI Act text. So, next steps include still the plenary adoption um, in April, followed by ministerial approval. So, a few things to come before entry into force two years from now. But one of the items I wanted to talk to you about, in addition to, you know, how you might be tracking developments or movement forward on, on these big actions, is on foundation models. So Europe tackled questions um, through its process in in trying to come up with this text around foundation models. And I know that Stanford HAI, through the Center for Research on Foundation Models, has done a fair amount of kind of important thinking and, and work here. Can you tell us about that?
1: Yeah, so this is actually one of the most exciting things that I think we've been able to work on on a policy space. So when we initially were getting the policy arm going in 2020. We would make some unique contribution. People say, that's great. But now everything tank in Washington is really into AI and they are starting to look into this and they can do some of this. But one thing that makes us really unique is I sit in Stanford's computer science department, but we're this multidisciplinary institute and we work so closely across campus. But one important part for us is being so close to this technology to uniquely understand it. For us, what we did was there was the parliamentarian version of the EU AI Act where they actually addressed foundation models. And in this, we went and we, when we saw no more amendments would be introduced to the parliamentarian version, we went and actually had the technical capability of benchmarking across the EU provisions. And so we could see this. And what we're able to see is none of the foundation model providers would be in compliance had that version passed at that time. What we were also able to see is a message that we could send to the foundation model providers. If this law passes in the, this version, you have a limited amount of time to get in compliance with this. And to the EU, it also sent a message. The only EU foundation model provider that we could you know, put on there was actually one of the Lesser performing ones of all of them. And we weren't trying to use this as a means to score against each other. It was just an opportunity to understand the the ecosystem here. But that sent a message to Europe and saying, how far do you want to go here? And what does this mean for your own indigenous development and, and systems here? And to me, that is the ultimate really good research here of understanding this with the technical capability, with the policy side of the house, and working towards this specifically. And once we get towards that area and we have this research of where it's really able to inform EU policymakers, that really gets me excited. So these are things that we have been able to do of benchmarking foundation model providers. And we do that, yes, through the Center on Research for Foundation Models. We do that through their work. They have the holistic evaluation of language models. Helm is one of these important parts. We have an ecosystem graphs that they are able to do. And then there's also the transparency index that actually looks for transparency in a lot of these places. This is a really important, powerful research that's informing policymakers, and we're trying really hard to make sure that we explain it well and get it into their hands and help them make better decisions.
0: So I think the last resource that I just wanted to touch on is a paper that came out this month titled Inspiring Action, Identifying the Social Sector AI Opportunity Gap. So in in the same spirit of measuring kind of gaps, what's kind of the one or two liner on the findings of how you measured that uh, gap and what exactly it is? I think
1: what the larger part of that is, is a bigger agenda here. And the agenda on that one for us is to say, how is society itself informed? So previously we had a policy arm, but now we actually call it policy and society. And the important aspect of that research was to demonstrate and do a survey of philanthropy in this space and how they're targeting funding and uh, understanding the civil society ecosystem here. And that is a key message is what I would say from that is really looking and understanding what society's role is and how we can actually help society have a much more active role in this and not be beholden to whether it's government and regulations and waiting for that or not waiting for that, or whether it's industry to make good choices here. Society has an active role. And so what we actually did is we convened a bunch of foundations, philanthropists, civil society organizations Just last week on Stanford's campus and HAI's headquarters, and we went through those findings, but we actually see this as the beginning of a longer arc of trying to work more actively with society to make sure that they're informed as best as possible, as much as we're trying to do for policymakers.
0: Great. Well, we look forward to that long arc and that progress there. Um, HAI is certainly proceeding with lots of different exciting activities, including Of course, its role in the recent launch of the Stanford Emerging Tech Review, which we'll be very excited to to see how that pulls all the different really powerful resources from Stanford from around the university together to help us better understand those emerging technologies. I want to just thank Russell today uh, for being with us and thank you, Russell, for sharing your views on how AI is developing, the geopolitics around it, policy, kind of what we need to see in in legislation or not at this point, but really particularly I think where you got to at the end of how we measure, I guess, success, how we measure whether models meet the various standards that we're setting and and if that's what we want to set for ourselves, those expectations going forward and and how we would measure those and what impact that will have for us. So for listeners who aren't as familiar with HAI, I would recommend you visit their website. There's a lot of research and initiatives that we discussed today that you can look at reports, indices, etc. at hai.stanford.edu, please do so. And otherwise, thank you very much for tuning into this episode of FRT. Uh, we look forward to having you join us again on upcoming episodes. And you can always check them out on the IF website as well at IF.com.